My first uh, contact with Sea Shepherd about this boat was a post by Captain Paul Watson on Facebook. And he said, I am sending a ship to help Dr. Alexander Morton fight fish farms. And he tagged me in that. So it appeared on my Facebook page and uh, the blood drained out of me. Environmental organization, the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society, has a controversial history, beginning 40 years ago with its campaign against the baby seal hunt, in particular on Canada's east coast. Captain Paul Watson, raised in New Brunswick, led the campaign against a tradition that he called inhumane. Each year they take about 180,000 newborn harp seal pups. They're clubbed uh, indiscriminately taken in front of their mothers. Only the pelts are taken, the rest of the carcass is left on the ice. And in many cases, because they're in a hurry to get as many seals as possible, they don't even bother to club the seals. And I've actually seen them skin a seal without clubbing them first. Paul and his team would film the hunt. This was before social media. And they sent their film to news organizations. In many ways, their tactics were successful. Although the seal hunt continues to this day, Sea Shepherd's campaign prompted governments to make it illegal to kill baby seals. At one point, Paul Watson and the ship's engineer were charged with interfering in a seal hunt in Canada's Gulf of St. Lawrence. Paul was sentenced to 15 months in jail. So when Alex received the notification that he was sending a ship to B.C. I, I messaged him immediately and asked him to take that post down because I was so worried that this would um, prohibit any kind of relationship between me and government. Paul Watson didn't answer me. The seal hunt was just the beginning. The website of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society says its mission is to protect the marine environment and end the destruction in the world's oceans. Captain Paul Watson started Sea Shepherd after leaving the environmental organization Greenpeace, which he co-founded in 1971. I felt that there was a need to actually take action and not just a protest. I'm not really a protester. And uh, so I set Sea Shepherd up to uh, intervene against illegal activities primarily. And uh, with a specific strategy, which I uh, call uh, aggressive nonviolence, <laughs> which means that uh, we're going to aggressively intervene, but we're not going to hurt anybody. Critics call Sea Shepherd's direct action tactics overly aggressive and illegal activism. Sea Shepherd tracked, reported on, and shadowed fishing and whaling ships. It got close to interfere in their activities. It rammed ships and sunk more than a few. It spent years fighting the Japanese whalers, and in 2014 the tables were turned. Anti-whaling activists say this video shows the Japanese whaling vessel, the Nishin Maru, ramming two of their ships. The activists, organised by Sea Shepherd, have spent two days trying to stop the Nishin from reaching the whaling fleet's fuel tanker. Sea Shepherd's founder, Paul Watson, claimed the SSS Bob Barker and the SSS Steve Irwin have been hit, but both are holding their ground. Japan. Carolina Castro was with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society for more than 20 years. She describes those early years as filling a policing gap. Way back in time when Captain Paul Watson was ramming boats and things like that, is, is, is important to notice that they were all illegal vessels. They were all pirate fishing vessels or, or pirate 
whaling vessels. So, you know, it was a way to call attention to that issue. Sea Shepherd's money comes from ordinary people, corporate donors, and paid lectures by Paul Watson. It also has the support of the famous. In return, Sea Shepherd names its ships after its big-name supporters, like game show host Bob Barker, author Farley Mowat, actors Bridget Bardot and Martin Sheen. The ships are referred to as Neptune's Navy. Alex had been offered the research ship the Martin Sheen, named after the actor, but she was already under attack for her work. It didn't make sense to put a target on her back by getting on a Sea Shepherd ship. You know, the Sea Shepherd Society, I think, is fabulous, and I think there really are organizations that need to put themselves on the front line, but I didn't see myself as taking that role, and I saw my association with them as dangerous. Welcome to the Salmon People podcast. I'm Sandra Bartlett. This podcast is a co-production with Canada's National Observer. We're crowdfunding to cover the cost of this podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can find a link in the show notes telling you how. Also, consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a comment. That helps more people find us. This is episode six, Skull and Crossbones. Sea Shepherd Captain, Lockie McLean. Yeah, I think Paul was, you know, a big fan of Alexandra's work. And um, he wanted to be able to support her mission. And, you know, Sea Shepherd has vessels. These fish farms are out of the way. And so a ship was the perfect platform. Alex talked to a few colleagues and friends and thought, well, maybe it wouldn't be so dangerous to take up Paul Watson's offer. She realized what a gift it would be to have a big sailing ship taking her around the fish farms all summer. She couldn't reach them in one summer in her small fishing boat. And also, I looked into the boat that they were offering, which is called the Martin Sheen, this beautiful big sailboat. And it was actually their research branch. It wasn't, we weren't going to go ram a farm. So the next message back to Paul was, when can you send the boat? He said, we'll be there in July. Then my thought process switched to, oh my gosh, somebody is going to give me a ship and a crew. I got to make really sure that I put this to to work and, and accomplish as much as I can with it. And the timing was good. She had just discovered yet another disease that seemed to be killing a lot of the wild salmon, Piscine reovirus. She wanted to investigate whether the disease was coming from the farms. There were two things I decided I would do. One was an audit of all the farms. So go up to the farms, put up a drone so you can really see in. And if they were willing, put down a diver and take a look, you know, see what we could see through the nets. The Martin Sheen was ideal for this work. As a research ship, it had freezers to store fish samples, GoPros to look under the water and drones to fly above it. In July 2016, the Martin Sheen pulled into the dock at Vancouver's Granville Island, making quite an entrance with its signature black mast with a skull and crossbones. Sea Shepherd Society wanted to do a media launch, and they invited Pamela Anderson, the uh, star from Baywatch, and Dr. David Suzuki, and I invited... Uh, Chief Willie Moon from uh, Zawadinik Kinkum. 
And so uh, we have the press conference, lots of people. Actor Pamela Anderson has supported Sea Shepherd for many years and joined the board of directors in 2015. Because I think even my mother was saying, well, if I'm buying farmed salmon, aren't I helping the wild populations? And I think that's a, a misconception. So I wanted to get involved in just bringing awareness. Science broadcaster David Suzuki told the crowd research that would be done on the Martin Sheen should have already been done by fisheries and oceans. Why is it that Alex has to go and do what should be our government's responsibility? We were splashed all over the media. People made fun of us because Pamela Anderson was there. Terrible. Um, But we had people's attention. The salmon farming industry was caught off guard. Jeremy Dunn from the Industry Association told CTV News it was a publicity stunt. Our members are uh, are obviously very concerned uh, with uh, with this campaign. The Sea Shepherd Society has a, a long reputation. They're certainly not uh, welcome on the private property. The Sea Shepherd Society calls itself a direct action organization, not a protest group. Its focus is to make people, governments, and industry accountable for their actions on the world's oceans. It names all of its campaigns. For example, a campaign to protect Australia's Great Barrier Reef was called Operation Reef Defense. The campaign in BC to support Alex and other scientists who were looking for diseases coming out of fish farms was called Operation Virus Hunter. I brought my microscope and my sleeping bag and some clothes and binoculars and everything I thought I would need and got on the boat. I think there's about eight people on board. They were from Argentina. The skipper, Font, was from Madagascar. Um, others were from United States, France, England. Really diverse group. So everyone's on board, and it's time to leave Vancouver. And I turned to the skipper, and I was like, oh, where are we going? <laughs> and he looked at me, and he's like, that's what you're going to tell me. And that's when it really sunk in that I was in charge. And so I said, okay, these are the first two farms, Jervis Inlet, we're going to go there. And so off we went. Campaign leader Carolina Castro says her job was to keep things running smoothly for the researchers. So this campaign specifically, it was uh, to, to aid Alexandra Morton in her research, right? So we had um, we had Alexandra Morton and another scientist from the University of Toronto, actually. Interestingly, the University of Toronto put a researcher on the boat who was doing uh, really important work to um, gather water around the farms and then put it through this process of, of getting out all the extraneous material. So you end up with what looks like a coffee filter with a stain on it, which is a virus sample or sample of the pathogens that are in the water. He was on for two years and this boat bumped up his research project by years and shaved off a a large amount of money. Then it occurred to her all these farms are in First Nations territory. And I also contacted the First Nations of the Broughton Archipelago and I said, um, I've been offered this boat. Do you, do you guys want to use it to amplify your message that you don't want these farms here? That was the plan, to do a scientific audit and then to also um, 
take it to the nations and let them use it for whatever they wanted to do. The Martin Sheen visited the Namgis Nation in Alert Bay, and hereditary chief Ernest Alford invited the crew and Alex to their big house, an invitation that's a big deal. The big house is used for spiritual and ceremonial events, like the naming of a baby. And it's where the community gathers to talk about important issues. This is hereditary chief Ernest Alfred. We threw a big, uh, a big gathering in our big house and, and spoke with the people that were on that ship. And was the captain of the ship got on the microphone after the presentation and he said, you know, if every, anybody would like to come down to the ship, the Martin Sheen, and, and come down for cookies and, and tea after, uh, you're invited. And so a lot of people went down to the boat and got a tour and whatnot. And, and we sat there around the uh, big sort of galley table and, and visited and talked about farms and everything. As the conversation continued, Ernest felt a deep pull. I was hooked. And so I said, I've, oh, Alex, I wish I could just come with you. And she said, well, why don't you? And I looked, of course, I looked at my mom and I looked at my wife who, who just said, well, you know, you better get packing. And I had that kind of support. And so I went home and I threw my things in a bag and went down to the Martin Sheen. Alex was happy to have Ernest on board representing the Namgis Nation. Neither of them knew that his participation would be a pivotal moment in the fight for the wild salmon. The first week, they sailed up to the Discovery Islands, between Vancouver Island and the mainland. Most of the islands are only reachable by boat. They stopped at a fish farm called Venture Point. Alex wanted to get close enough to the farms to gather water samples to see if disease was coming out of the farm. Right away, Alex could see the fish were barely moving along the top of the water, with their backs exposed to the summer sun. Some were clustered around the place where fresh water was being pumped in. Others were lifting their heads out of the water. A crew member sent up a drone to get a better look. I tried to get DFO to come out and tell me, were these fish dying of Piscine ortheriovirus? Because we knew the history of this farm and it had an outbreak of this uh, virus and the disease that it causes. DFO never came. The fish farmers just went in their houses and didn't come out for three days. And fish were dying and lying on the surface. After the third day, the farm workers came out and started taking the sick fish out of the farm. And so we did film them in slow motion, you know, pulling these diseased fish out of the major migration route of wild salmon in British Columbia. Along with the drones above, the Martin Sheen crew had scuba divers who took video of what was happening below the surface. The divers had much better cameras. The divers could see what they were doing, and they were able to swim the net. The fish farms, located in isolated areas, weren't used to having uninvited guests, and they weren't happy. This huge sailing ship sitting near the farm, Alex dipping her net into the water right beside the farms. Ian Roberts of Marine Harvest says it took a toll on the staff's mental well-being. Our staff were physically blocked from accessing parts of their workplace. Um, they were subject to unwelcome physical presence and harmful verbal commentary. And our salmon were also stressed. We weren't able to care for them daily due to the constant movement of people. Ian Roberts was director of public affairs at Marine Harvest when Sea Shepherd was moving around the fish farms. 
He's now the communications director for both Canada and Scotland. Canada is a, is a democracy where you're allowed to protest, but obviously things progressed to the point where you know, we were having difficulty conducting our business because it uh, turned into more of an occupation than a peaceful protest. We actually didn't see much science. All we saw was photographs being taken, blogs being written, and excursions to the sites to walk about our workplace. It was hard for the fish farms to stop First Nations people from coming onto the farms. Employees told them they were trespassing but didn't call police. They were on their ancestral lands, after all. Alex definitely couldn't go on a farm uninvited. But from a research point of view, just getting close enough to collect water samples at so many fish farms was good enough. The Piscine ortheriovirus was coming out of the majority of the farms. And this was the first time that I was able to put the virus together with a company and with a specific farm. Because previously, all of my sampling had been done in um, supermarkets. You heard that right. Supermarkets. Alex had asked the fish farms to give her fish she could test for diseases. The fish farms didn't think Alex was a biologist or a neutral observer, so they said no. When they said no, she went to grocery stores and bought farmed fish and tested it. We try to get the freshest one possible, so they have a date right on them, best before. I've seen a lot of fish in these supermarkets that I'm really shocked they're selling. The people in the city don't know what a healthy fish is going to look like. And so they apparently buy them and eat them. She also went to a sushi restaurant, put her sushi order into a bag of ice, and tested the fish later. Both the sushi restaurant salmon and the grocery store salmon tested positive for pathogens and disease. Now, to be clear, finding diseases in fish doesn't mean the fish are dangerous for human consumption. But it did demonstrate that fish farm salmon are not always healthy when they're harvested and sold. Meanwhile, First Nations were seeing fish farms up close for the first time. Some communities would put people on board the Martin Sheen for short periods. A community in Kincominlet sent council member Melissa Willie to serve an eviction notice to the fish farms in their neighborhood. Other First Nations perform cleansing ceremonies on the farms. We have to remember that we're doing this for our, our families, our children, and all of our grandchildren. This land does not really belong to us, it belongs to them. They devised a cleansing ceremony, and they took cedar branches and dressed in regalia, and they walked around the farms uh, trying to cleanse the area symbolically, which was just so unexpected and powerful and beautiful. And on the third one, um, down at Midsummer Island, well, this one was closer to uh, outside villages and people came from uh, Guilford Village and from Alert Bay and there was many, many boats and the, the farm was just full of people. That day, she was asked by the First Nations to come on that fish farm with them. She'd never had this opportunity before, and she jumped at the chance to get on the farms with an escort. Well, I was so excited to actually get to look at the fish, like straight down rather than <laughs> through netting or uh, with a drone. And I took a GoPro camera with me, 
and and stuck it in and uh wow so there was fish that were the you know exhibiting the classic behavior of Piscean orthoreovirus where they line up at the net with all their noses against the net desperate for oxygen uh and they're underweight and i was on there i had my camera down for about 20 minutes and <laughs> there it was i i caught it in 20 minutes it was one thing to have to tolerate First Nations people on the fish farms. It was another to watch Alex Morton putting her GoPro down into the pens. So Marine Harvest went to court and got an injunction that banned Alex from stepping foot on a fish farm again. But she'd already got what she needed, what she felt was proof that Piscine reovirus and sea lice were in the fish farms. The summer was so successful that everyone agreed Sea Shepherd should come back in 2017. The fish farm industry was not happy the ship was coming back. The BC Salmon Farmers Association issued a news release describing the stress on the workers and the salmon. These are Jeremy Dunn's words from the news release. They regularly dealt with the low-flying drones, activists with cameras taking images of their living quarters, and frequent breaches of biosecurity protocols that protect fish health. At the time, Jeremy Dunn was the executive director of the BC Salmon Farmers Association. He pointed out in the news release that Sea Shepherd Society was foreign. We're disappointed that this latest American-funded and organized activist campaign is attempting to paint a misleading picture of an industry that provides a healthy, sustainable product that feeds millions of people. Sea Shepherd was only providing a ship and was not paying for anyone's research. And another irony was clear. For all of his complaints about American involvement, most of the fish farm industry is owned by Norwegian and Japanese companies. The news release pointed out that the first-year Virus Hunter research campaign had failed to publish or indicate any scientific findings at all. That was true, but not abnormal. It takes one to two or more years to write and publish a paper. Alex had found evidence of the disease HSMI in many of the water samples and was in fact preparing a paper. Meanwhile, she had published a paper with Rick Rutledge and other scientists on her grocery store and sushi restaurant sampling. They found evidence of ISAV, a virus that can devastate both farmed and wild fish. It was a different variant... Remember variants from COVID? Well, it was a different variant from what had been seen before in Canada. The BC Salmon Farmers Association attacked that paper and the authors in a news release. We have concerns about the methodology and the ethics of the researchers involved. None of the results reported in this paper had been confirmed by an outside laboratory. It pointed out that the lab used by the study had been audited in 2012 and found to be cramped and untidy, which the audit said could result in samples being contaminated. When Alex published a second paper on finding another virus, Piscine real virus, in the supermarket salmon, the BC salmon farmers attacked it too. Executive Director Jeremy Dunn said in a news release that sampling supermarket fish is poor science. This paper is part of a deliberate activist campaign led by Alexandra Morton and can hardly be taken as unbiased research. In the news release, Jeremy Dunn does not call Alex a biologist or a scientist. She's an activist. 
It clouds the important work being done by highly educated and trained scientists in labs in Canada and other parts of the world. Partly true. There was much research being done on PRV around the world. In fact, most of the research suggested that fish farms were breeding grounds for the virus. Jeremy Dunn pointed to a study being done by Fisheries and Oceans with the University of British Columbia. Results of testing on Atlantic salmon show that the presence of the virus has little to no effect on an animal's fitness. And the press release pointed out that farmed salmon are vaccinated against most potentially harmful viruses before being transferred from the hatchery to the ocean pens. This fight over science, whose science is more significant or revealing, is not new. The fight is known as the science of doubt. It's a tactic that was created by Big Tobacco in 1969 to push back against the mounting evidence of tobacco's dangers. And it was successful. It warded off government regulation and kept the debate over tobacco's dangers alive for decades. The plan to sow doubt was only revealed when an internal memo became public. It's a tactic Sean Jones is familiar with. I think of that 1969 memo that a tobacco company wrote that said, said, you know, our product is doubt. We're selling doubt. We're selling doubt that cigarettes cause cancer. The tobacco playbook, as it's called, is still used by big business today to defend dangerous or poisonous products or chemicals. Sean Jones is a BC lawyer who practices environmental, indigenous, and regulatory law. He's worked with First Nations fighting to have fish farms removed from the Broughton Archipelago. He worked with Alex Morton on a case against fisheries and oceans to force the department to test fish for disease when they're transferred into the ocean pens. Sean says DFO managers try to cast doubt on almost all the science but their preferred science regularly dismissing international research, and sometimes that of their own scientists like Christy Miller, whom we heard from in Episode 5 at the Cohen Inquiry. And really what they're doing is that they're fomenting debate and creating doubt so that they can hide behind it and not regulate the industry in an appropriate manner. Sean says this push by industries to promote doubt is why governments adopted the precautionary principle when in doubt, err on the side of caution. They would trade on scientific uncertainty and say that they shouldn't have to curtail their activities or their profits shouldn't be impeded when the harm hadn't been proven. But it's also become a legal duty. And, and that's for governments to anticipate attack and prevent environmental harm. And that's really the the key principle, that the governments aren't supposed to be responding to harm and cleaning it up after the fact or reacting to it. They're intended to anticipate it, attack it and prevent it, and to not let uncertainty in science delay that fundamental duty. 
Sean says two recent cases, in 2015 and 2019, both brought by Alex Morton, challenged DFO for its failure to deal with the risk of the disease PRV in fish farms. One of the fish farm companies argued that um, the precautionary principle was only triggered when there was a threat of serious or irreversible harm. The court rejected that. And the court said rather that the focus is to exercise more caution when information is uncertain. So arguments that the science is unclear or weak on whether fish farms are a threat to wild salmon can't be an excuse for fisheries and oceans not to act. And yet, despite the two court decisions and an abundance of evidence showing piscine real virus can cause disease, DFO refuses to screen farm salmon for the virus before they're moved from the hatchery to the ocean pens. The work that was being done by Alex Morton and scientists on the Sea Shepherd was actually DFO work, and the closest thing to actually getting inside the farms and testing the fish. Word had gotten around about the Sea Shepherd, and more First Nations took the opportunity to spend some time on the ship, getting a different view of the fish farms in their territories. But there were some First Nations who had agreement with fish farms, and they told Alex the Sea Shepherd was not welcome in their territory. But that ban couldn't apply to another First Nation. So Alex asked George Quaxister Jr. to come on board and escort the ship through those First Nations communities. George is a hereditary chief of the Laquado First Nation. He agreed to come on the boat for our passage through the Discovery Islands. George agreed to join Alex because he didn't like the fact that fish farms on the ocean in First Nations territory were considered private property. In Campbell River, where George lives, the Quok sister name is very respected. They are a family of commercial fishermen with business records going back to the 1830s. The family history is part of an exhibit at the Campbell River Museum. Quok sister is a shortened version of the family name. A government agent said the full last name, Quoxistala Quok sister, was too hard to pronounce, and so it was shortened. George's grandfather, Captain George Quoxistala Quok sister, who died in 1921, was the last to use the full name. George Quaxister Jr. has had a colorful life. So that's what I used to do, skipper the boats. I started when I was 18 years old, right? Then as time went on, I went He skippered big boats from Alaska boats. to California, sometimes taking his kids along. And for a time, he was a shark pool player, and he has the trophies to prove it. <laughs> Pretty much the best on Vancouver Island. And now, a fighter for the wild salmon. Well, the fact of the matter is, I'll always be here putting up a fight to try to stop this dirty industry, and I know our people up and down the coastal channels here will be doing the same thing. George was looking forward to seeing the fish farms up close. And so we nosed the uh, Martin Sheen up to the farm, and George gets out on the bow, and he calls out to the farmer, hey, what are those fish in your pens? The farmer does not skip a beat, and he says, there's no fish in this pen. Well, George knew straight up he was lying. 
So George got off the ship and took a GoPro camera with him. As he stepped onto the aluminum walkway of the fish farm, he was met by a farm employee. I gotta say my part. Yeah, so, 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 so. You know it's private property. It's not allowed on here, right? Private property in my territorial waters? They haven't even phoned me or anything to ask to be in my territorial waters. This is Norwegian from another country. There's seven ton of our baby fish in that pen. Seven ton of our baby fish which is, brings food to our table, you know what I mean? What, what is that fish doing there, right? The baby fish in the video are herring, and they're not supposed to be in the farms. The farms are supposed to prevent that from happening. Ultimately, the fish farm employee doesn't stop George as he walks from pen to pen, putting his GoPro down into the water, looking at the Atlantic salmon. It's hard to see this shit. It's not good. And this is it. And this, this, this is. I don't want to make any comments. This is 30 years of this shit, and it hurts. Salmon, both wild and farmed, eat herring. So tons of baby herring is free food for the farm. But fish lost to herring fishermen and wild salmon. George wondered was this free food for the fish farms? And so they didn't work very hard to prevent the small fish from getting into the pens? In 2012, Marine Harvest was fined for having wild herring in one of its farms. When he got back to the Martin Sheen, George had to take a minute before he could tell everyone what he'd seen. He had tears in his eyes and he just kept shaking his head. There's tons of wild stock fish in there. It was his first time on a fish farm. He'd never seen anything like it. He wanted to know if this was a one-off, or were all the fish farms like this? He decided to answer that question by spending the rest of the summer on the Martin Sheen, putting his GoPro into the pens and questioning fish farm workers. Hereditary Chief George Quaxister Jr., you're in my territorial waters. I'm just asking you a question. What kind of fish you got in this pen here? There's no fish in there. No fish? No baby fish or anything in there? By now, George knows there are always herring in the pens, and there are always sick Atlantic salmon. At every farm in the Discovery Islands and then the islands of the Broughton Archipelago, George climbed onto the fish farm's walkway and made his way from pen to pen. Sometimes there were six pens, sometimes up to 14, and he put his GoPro into the water. It's hard to overstate the significance of what George Quaxister Jr. did. A hereditary chief was gathering video of what was going on below the placid surface of a fish farm. Video that had never been seen before by the people for whom salmon was part of their essence. It was an act that would shift the fight against the fish farms. Late in the summer, it was decided it was time to share the videos with First Nations community members. I took that footage and edited it down so that the nations that we went to could see what was happening in every single farm that we had gone to. On a hot August day in 2017, a community meeting was called at Kincom Inlet with Alex Morton as the guest. The village is almost 300 kilometers northwest of Vancouver, even more isolated than Echo Bay where Alex had lived. To get there by boat was a zigzagging ride around islands of the Broughton Archipelago. 
Alex was there to show video of life under the water at the fish farms, footage she and George Kwok's sister Junior had recorded. And I recall when I played that up at uh, Kingdom Village, they could only take so much. And they said, turn it off, turn it off. To, to them, it, it was the suffering of these salmon. Salmon was part of their lives, was part of their history. Salmon, to them, were spiritual. Um, they were ancestors. And to see the uh, state, the condition of these fish in the waters of their own territories, they were crying. They were in tears. They were just sickened by it. The next stop was Alert Bay on Cormorant Island, a 20-minute ferry ride from Campbell River on the mainland. Carissa Glendale remembers how she felt when she saw the videos. I was pretty shocked. I mean, I knew a little bit that the farms were bad, but I didn't know how bad. And, you know, to see that footage and those pictures, and I was just like, wow, how... How do they even think that this is okay? Hereditary Chief Ernest Alfred from the Namgis was there too. He'd spent that first summer on the Martin Sheen and had seen some of the early videos. He anticipated the reactions these videos would get. I think the very first thing was discussed and how, how, how appalling those images were. But I think there was also an incredible sadness that... You know, I think there was a lot of pain of our community members who who couldn't believe that we've we've come to this place. We've we've allowed this, you know, because this is our house. We've got to do something here. People were sad and then they were angry. Pretty much when I decided that, you know, I needed to take action and do something because, you know, I knew if we didn't, we just let this continue and we didn't try get them out that you know I would be telling my nieces and nephews just stories on how we used to work on fish and how it used to taste. Carissa Glendale watched as her uncle Ernest Alfred stood up. You know there was all these talks about doing another protest doing these eviction notices and all this talk and by then I'm I'm pulling my hair out saying uh, and and I, it was my turn to speak. So I got up and I just said, you know what? I'm going to go out to Swanson Island Fish Farm and I'm going to stay. And I'm going to occupy that farm until we hear some serious movement on the issue. He got up. He said, uh, I'm going to go and occupy and stay out there until, you know, they start listening and until the farms are gone. He said, who's, who's coming with me? And the whole community hall just kind of went quiet. And I was sitting in the back and, okay, I'll go with you. When are we leaving? And he said, first thing in the morning. And he got up and left. The feeling in the room was electric. Everybody turned to him. Everybody knew, wow, this was the next step. Everybody knew it, but nobody wanted to take it. Next time on the Salmon People podcast... The Occupation. The Salmon People podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Sandra Bartlett. It's a co-production with Canada's National Observer. Story editing by My Frozen Headphones Production. Sound engineering by Damien Kearns and Ben Ramos-Salzberg. 
And it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and maybe even leave a comment. That helps others find us. 